Hey, so welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. I'm already hot. It's like, it's like sticking up here. My hands are sticking to it already. Uh, uh, sermon notes look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes to go deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions to go deeper as well. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on uh, More and then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You get sermon notes, verses, announcements, questions. All that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Uh, This is Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. And it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people who understand your great faithfulness. Even sometimes in the midst of afflictions and sufferings that we go through or the things that we carry day by day, by day, that we would understand that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you are faithful, and that you are kind. And we would live that out in our lives by how we interact with everything that comes our way, with our focus upon who you are because you're good. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we're doing a series throughout the book of Ruth. This is uh, week three. If you want to open to the book of Ruth, you can. Chapter one, Ruth is right after the book of Judges. It's right before the book of 1 Samuel. It's kind of small, so you might just flip over it if you're not careful. I had a lot of notes that I had that I mushed together for the day, so I'm going to kind of not confuse you, hopefully, by jumping around too much. Uh, The book of Ruth comes right on the heels of the book of Judges. Uh, The period of the book of Judges is roughly 1200 to 1020 B.C., and I know, yes, I said B.C. I know if you're in our world today, it's supposed to be B.C.E. before Common Era or Common Era, which is, I call that A.D., but all centers around the birth of Jesus, so I'm just going to say B.C. and A.D., because I'm old and I will not learn new tricks, and I am staying with that because I like Jesus. Okay, so Judges stretches essentially from the death of Joshua to the coronation of Saul as the first human king of Israel. You don't see that coronation in Judges. That happens in 1 Samuel, but it kind of stretches right to that point. Now, God had warned his people, when you give up me as your king and put a human king in, things are not going to go well for you. You can read Judges against in your Bible. I have a plan to go through it someday at some point. probably take us a year to get through it because that's how we roll. But Judges is a time of rebellion where God's people are obstinate. They are closed-minded to the things that God wants to say and the things that God is doing. The Israelites live in the midst of a people who do not follow God, much like our culture. And instead of living in a way that lifts up the gospel and God's goodness, they tried to live just like the culture around Around them, which unfortunately is how a lot of the church lives today. God's people from one generation to the next in Israel continue, continue down this path that traveled away from God, most notably sexually. And the book of Judges ends with this horrific scene of a young woman being raped, cut into pieces, and an entire tribe of Israel being wiped out because of the sin. And then you get to the book of Ruth. At the end of the book of Judges, you read these verses. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The book of Ruth will start with a man. His name is Elimelech, and he's going to move to this place called Moab. Moab is a place where God told his people, don't go there, but this guy goes. And it shows you that how the book of Judges was lived and how the book of Judges ended is exactly how the book of Ruth begins. The guy that was right in his own eyes. And in the end, he will die, and so will his sons. And some people say, well, if he didn't go there, you wouldn't get the book of Ruth. Well, true, but it doesn't mean his actions weren't sin. What it means is, is that God uses our sin to bring about his goodness because God himself is good. God does what he does 
through man's acts because God is, acts in kindness towards us. He acts in love even when we don't deserve it, which is really never. And Elimelech goes to this place. His sons marry Moabite women. He dies. His sons die. And so this is kind of where you see the story take off with Naomi, his widow, and these two girls that his sons married. This is Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 6. It says, Then she arose, that's Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. She had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So they went to Moab because there was no food in Bethlehem, the house of bread. And now there's food there because there may not be food in Moab. It's kind of like if you go into L.A. and you're driving in traffic. You're like, hey, that lane's faster. Oh, no, I got in it. I'll get this one. And it trying to make this connect right so that, that, that's kind of what's like she's going here she's going to go there going to, going to go there and at this place is the first time god is mentioned in the book of ruth god will be mentioned 23 times throughout the book of ruth and the only time god is mentioned not by a character but by the narrator is right here where it says god gave food and then in ruth chapter 4 where it says god gave a baby those are the two places it's meant to remind us that god is always good Naomi gains a little bit of hope because she hears God has returned to Bethlehem, the house of bread, food has returned. God has brought hope again to these people. It isn't chance, it isn't climate change, it isn't the Schwann's delivery guy showing up, it's God, it was God. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So goodbye, Moab, that's not in the scriptures, that's my commentary. Verse 8, but Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to her mother's house. And commentators are split on what is actually taking place here. Let me ask you a question if you've been here for the last couple weeks. How do the Israelites feel about the Moabites? They don't like them, okay? They don't like them. They're horrible, evil people. How do you think the people of Bethlehem would have viewed Naomi if she showed up with these two Moabites in tow? How would they feel about her? irritated, right? Well, what do you do with, with, with those Moabites? So, some commentators say she could be trying to cover her shame by sending them away so she doesn't have to have them around her, passive-aggressively getting rid of them. This is how, if you don't know, Christian kids break up with one another when they're in relationships. They do this passive-aggressive thing. Oh, God told me i got to follow him and um, focus too much time on you. So it's always God's fault, right? And it's like, what they're saying to you is they don't want to give any time to you. That's what they're saying. Or when people go off to college and say, I'm going to college, you shouldn't have to wait for me. What they're saying is, I don't want to wait for you. Okay, that, that's, that's what they're saying. Okay, They're just too chicken to say it. I think our world would go a lot better and we'd solve a lot more problems if people were just plain and said what they meant. But I'm going to warn you, if you are plain and say what you mean, people are going to get mad at you. I have been called aggressive. I don't know why. Actually, this week, Michael, one of the guys on staff, he called me matter-of-fact. <laughs> and I go, well, what's that? And he's all, you need to be nicer. And I go, oh. Okay, that makes more sense because I don't, I don't understand. The staff says I'm rubbing off on them. I don't see it. They're not matter-of-fact enough for me. But anyway, so that, that's part of it. You know, Passive-aggressively trying to send them away. Other people say Naomi is actually trying to be nice and release them from her. She has no money. She has no home. She has no hope of really having any more sons for them to marry. So she's trying to like send them away, go home. Then she says this, which is central to the character of who God is. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. So go away. Hopefully you'll find a new husband. What she says here in this, that may the Lord deal kindly with you, this is the Hebrew word has said. 
Hesed is a very important word in the scriptures. It is usually translated as God's kindness or mercy or even sometimes love. The main word in the Old Testament for love is this word called ahav. We actually get our word agape out of that. This is where uh, love your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18, that's the word ahav. Or uh, love the stranger in your midst, Deuteronomy 10.19, that's the word. 208 times that word is used. But said is also used, love, grace, compassion, and it carries the idea that God is faithful, that God keeps his word no matter what. It indicates faithfulness to a relationship even when many times we are unfaithful. Again, said is very important in the scriptures, love, grace, compassion. God keeps his word. God shows his grace and mercy, not always how we think, but he shows it to his people. God's love, his kindness, his said moves him to be kind to those with whom he has a relationship with. Psalm 18, verse 50, he gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. That right there, unfailing kindness, that's the word said. At the NIV, the verse we started with says, uh, Lamentations 3.22, this way, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. That's the word has said. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. The word compassion is the word rahamim, and it means like a mother's womb, how a mother's womb nourishes and takes care of a baby and protects it as it's being formed. And it's supposed to understand that God's kindness causes him to care for us like a baby in its mother's womb. That's what God's kindness does. And sometimes people get really confused about the scriptures because sometimes people say, well, but there's two different gods. You might have even heard this. There's like the, the junior high God of the Old Testament who's all hopped up on emotion and he wants to burn everybody when they do something wrong to him. Then you got Jesus, the hippie God in the New Testament, who's all flowers and, oh, here, it's so good. Aromatherapy, right? No, there is one God. There is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We know there is one God. And if there is one God, and he is faithful, and he is loving, and he is kind, and he is just, and he is nurturing, why do you see both sides at work sometimes? And the answer is God's justice and our injustice. Lamentations 3, Zechariah 7 says, When we crush prisoners, when we deny basic rights, we pervert the cause of justice, when we get rid of the foreigners in our land, God has to come and discipline his children to move them back in line to how they are supposed to live. God calls us to be a people always on mission everywhere, and he will take and move us back to who we were meant to be. And this is kind of happening with Naomi. Naomi tries to send these young women off with a reminder of God's loyalty while probably maybe covering her butt just a little bit. Verse 9, then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So you can see that they're girls. First service, it was like, what? Did you just say that? Look, I'm going to tell you that guys do not do goodbyes, okay? I don't do goodbyes. Last year, my friend Jonathan visited, and his flight was at 5.30 in the morning. I drove him to the airport at 5 a.m., dropped him off with his bags, and took off like he was a bad prom date. That's what I did, because that's how men do it. My friend Mike Foster, who played drums for years, when he moves to Colorado, he, last time I saw him, he's like, bye, and I'm going to bye. You're dead to me, right? That's how men do it. We don't cry. He might listen to this podcast and be very happy I even just mentioned him. So whatever. And so, some commentators believe, and I actually agree, that this is actually a prayer of Naomi. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The, may the Lord uh, grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And what you see is even in the midst of this Moabite culture, she still prays to the Lord. That's God Almighty. She doesn't pray to Chemosh, the Moabite God. And in the book of Ruth, kind of an amazing thing here is that every time somebody prays in the book of Ruth, they typically pray for somebody else. And in the book of Ruth, 
every prayer that's prayed actually gets answered in one way or another. Later, Ruth is going to be referred to with the word hased, and that will tell you that she began to follow in God's way. She trusted in the God that at first loved her, and she had the same character as he did. Verse 10, and they said, no, we'll return with you to your people. So at first, like, no, no, we're not leaving you. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. And if you ever, if you have kids and they get married someday, where do they marry? You know, the, if, if your daughter marries a guy or your son marries a girl, they, they're not your daughter-in-law or son-in-law. They are your son or your daughter. That's family. That's how it's supposed to be. Your mother-in-law can still be your mother-in-law. That's biblical. <laughs> turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may succumb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for, at, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she's trying to show the irrationality of them staying with her. She's like, I'm old, I may never have kids, and if I do, I don't know if my lady parts are going to work. If you stay with me, you're giving up everything for a normal life. So go. Naomi sounds very angry at God, and that's because she is. She's bitter. But she also knows the ultimate reality, that God is in control, that God holds ultimately everything in his hands. So she ultimately holds him responsible for her pain, even though her husband was a complete knucklehead. He moved them to Moab. He let the boys marry Moabite girls. He just made all these horrible decisions. But yes, in the end, God is sovereign. And I don't know if you've ever had something like this in your life where you identify with this. You have all these stupid decisions people make, and it goes a horrible direction, but you're like, but God, you could have done something. Well, yes, God could have. It's like, I know I ate an all-Twinkie diet mixed with beer and pizza, and I had a heart attack, but God, you could have done something. Well, he could have. He could have. I know I never disciplined my kid and let them think that they rule the world. Now they can't hold a job, but God, you could have done something. Well, yeah, he could. Whatever stupid decision you make, God could actually do something in the midst of that, and I think he really does on the backside as he works through the sin, as he brings us back in line with who we are meant to be. I'll come back to this idea in just a moment. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The way this is written in the Hebrew is it actually says, Orpah kissed, Ruth clung. And this is to show that Orpah is like, bye, I'm out. She kisses goodbye while Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. To show you the differences between their two responses. Verse 15. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. The Bible never says there are other gods. What it tells you is there are people that worship other things or other objects of worship. And Orpah does what we all would do. She goes to the place where it is completely comfortable. I know where I've been. I'll just go back here. Everything will be great over there. And that's what we all tend to do. And this is also, on Naomi's part, the worst evangelism technique in the world. Oh, you don't like Jesus? You try Buddha or Krishna? Don't do that. Okay, that's the worst evangelism technique ever. Verse 16. But Ruth said, first time she speaks, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord, and she uses God's personal name, May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Most commentators believe that this 
this right here is the place of Ruth's conversion. It's where she decides, I'm not going back. I'm going to follow the God of the Scriptures. That's where I'm going. And I think even in the midst of this strife and all that's going on, she has lost a husband. I think she understands who God is better than Naomi, who was raised in the midst of God's people. And I think this happens a lot today, too. A lot of people who become Christians from the outside and weren't raised in the church many times have a better view and perspective of who Jesus is and is calling our lives. A lot of Christians today that are raised in churches view Jesus through a narrow lens that's us against them, the holy versus the unholy, the godly versus the ungodly. And so in many churches, you get these things that try and separate them from other people. You'll get, you know, robes and choirs and hymns and spiritual words no one understands and doilies for your wife's head so they're very submissive to you. Everyone wants a doily on their wife's head. No. Three-piece suits, 20-pound Bibles. And not that there's anything wrong with the 20-pound Bible if you read it. Not that there's anything bad with a three-piece suit. I got a couple suits. I wear them at weddings and funerals. Not that there's anything bad with, with choirs or, or hymns or, or things like that. It's when we use those things to try and separate ourselves from everybody else to make us different. When the church stops engaging the culture around them, when it stops proclaiming the gospel of the true and living God and somebody becomes about morality, we have lost the mission that God has sent us on. I wasn't raised in a church. I became a Christian when I was 17, and I had zeal, and I was passionate, and I was stupid. Ask my brother. I was really stupid. But I always took who Jesus was very seriously, very seriously, because I came out from the outside. We must be able to discern what's from the scriptures and what's from tradition and always put the scriptures over traditions of men. The gospel is true. Jesus wants us to be ambassadors of that truth to all men in every circumstance we find ourselves in. And this is what God is going to do through the life of Naomi and Ruth and this guy you'll meet named Boaz in here. But at this point, Naomi sees God not as a friend, but as an enemy. That God is against her. God is crushing her. Like God's a capricious God who can't control his emotions like that junior high girl I talked about. And she prays certain words over these girls, but does she really believe those words? Does she really believe the things she says? Ruth, on the other hand, sees God as sovereign, good, and loyal to his words, that God himself is kind. I was reading a whole lot of stuff, listening to a whole lot of things about this section and Ruth. And one of the things I think the best commentators have come back to is this idea called sanctified affliction. Charles Spurgeon, John James, John Flavel, uh, even more recently John Piper all talk about this idea. John Flavel was a Puritan. He lost three wives, like not in the mall, but they actually died. Okay, so he lost three wives. Uh, maybe I shouldn't make a joke about stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he, lost his, he lost his son, uh, he lost his parents, he was kicked out of his church, and he asked this question, why does God sovereignly permit the suffering of his people? And he gives eight answers to this question. I actually, I'm going to keep these short, but I wrote a blog that's a little bit longer, it's on our website, so if, if I get boring, you can even look at it right now on our website, but I've got a blog that kind of breaks this out a little more. So why does God do this? First of all, he says to reveal and deter. God wants to reveal our character and who we are and the things we've been chasing after us and deter us from the ways of sin. Secondly, to produce godliness and spiritual fruit. That we would be a people who understand in the midst of our affliction that we are supposed to be Christ-centered and that begins to produce fruit in our lives. Thirdly, he says, to reveal more of the character of God. In the midst of our affliction, we can truly see who God really is in his ascent, in his kindness as he comes to rescue us. Fourthly, to relinquish the temporary for the eternal. We are so often hanging on to temporary things, thinking this will suffice, and it doesn't. And so God pries our hands off of those things and begin to realize what is actually eternal. Fifthly, to produce a sincere faith devoid of hypocrisy. When you are in the midst of pain and suffering and affliction, it shows what you really believe. 
It really does. Uh, Number six, to encourage fellowship with God through word and prayer. When you are in the midst of affliction and suffering, you start praying like you've never prayed before. Seven, to bear witness to the world. Because how we suffer should be different than anybody else in this world where our hope and our faith is found in the person of Jesus. Eight, he says, to cultivate communion with Christ, the greatest sufferer, where we begin to realize that Jesus didn't just leave us in our pain. He stepped into our pain, took on flesh to rescue and redeem us, that he has become the greatest sufferer. And so in our suffering, we can understand what he suffers just a tiny bit. And if you call yourself a Christian, it does not remove you from suffering. It doesn't remove me from suffering, but it can be a sanctified affliction. The word sanctify or sanctification is this really big Christian word, and it simply means the process where God changes us now, today, day by day, to become more like Him in this world and in our life. That does not mean that everything comes from the hand of God, but as Naomi rightly surmised, everything at least passes through the hand of God. And we say this all the time in Elmet. Either it comes from the hand of God or it passes through it. Because God is sovereign, He can act or not act. He can intervene or not intervene. He can allow blessing or hardship to come. He is sovereign. He gets to do as He pleases. What this practically means for us is that whatever our affliction is, it's serving a purpose in our lives. It is serving a purpose. And it is different than that same thing may happen in someone who doesn't believe in God. And what I mean is that if you know, if you know God and somebody doesn't, you may both suffer the exact same affliction. It could be a job loss, a hardship, a betrayal, a sickness, losing a loved one, whatever it might be. For the non-Christian, it could be cause and effect or judgment or justice. But for those who know God, it is always meant to be a sanctified affliction. It's an affliction that God uses in our lives to sanctify us, to grow us, even if it comes about by your own dumb choice that started it. He can still move that to a place where he redeems it. It is an affliction that God will use to make us more like Jesus day by day. It'll cause us to love him more wholeheartedly, to obey him more readily. And if I can get really real, guys, if you are a believer, you will find yourself in some place like Naomi, If you haven't been there at some point, praise God, one day you will. You will find some suffering and affliction in your life where life is hard and it feels like God is your enemy. And you have all these questions and prayers and you feel like God doesn't hear your prayers and he's not listening to you. And maybe your questions will only be answered when you meet him and see him face to face. But there is a question God wants us to ask in the middle of every suffering and affliction that we have. And that is, God, how are you using this to sanctify me? How are you growing me in the midst of this? Because God is loyal to his words. He acts in kindness towards us. And there is no suffering, and there is no affliction, and there is no weeping, and there is no mourning, and there is no dark days for the child of God that is pointless, purposeless, or without merit. You have to understand that. And everything we go through. This is something that is imperative for us to believe. Deep in our souls, we must believe this. Because if you don't, you will never live or find joy in the midst of a suffering. Unless you know the God of the Bible, you'll never even understand why the suffering takes place. Everything can be a sanctified affliction, and that will change how we suffer. I am not saying that every evil and injustice is something that God brought, but that in every hardship and every affliction, it can be used by God for His glory and our good. Naomi doesn't see this yet, but she will by the end of the book. 
God is sovereign and good, both together. He rules and reigns over everything. There is no authority higher than Him. He is over our lives. He is over heaven and hell. Proverbs says He's even over the dice that people roll. Not that He makes the numbers come up, but He's over it, and He could make it come up however He wanted to. Don't blame Him if you lose at Vegas, by the way. Okay? He's over the stars in the heaven. He's over where you park at Costco, or when we move to our new facility where you won't be able to park because there's no parking. He's over the, the heat in this room last week, or the mugginess this week. He is over all of it. He is over our lives. He's over everything. He's an ultimate authority. And yet God is also good. He is also good. He is loving and patient and merciful and kind. When God reveals himself to Moses, he says these words about himself in Exodus 34, 6. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. That's the word has said. Steadfast love for thousands. God is good. There is evil in the world. We are evil. But God is good. Sovereignty, goodness, kindness. It must go hand in hand, especially in the midst of suffering. And if you cling to one and not the other, you will have an insufficient and distorted view of who God is. You will not understand what's taking place in your life. If you see God as sovereign and not good, you'll know he's in control, but you'll think he is mean and cruel and unjust. And that is not the God of the Bible. God does not decree murder or rape or how you treat your spouse like garbage. God does not decree the murder of an innocent. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that everything happens is explicitly God's will. There are many things that are not God's will. We call these things sin. And God weeps and God mourns and God gets angry at sin. Jesus even weeps over the Jerusalem when he stands outside of it because of their sin. But God is sovereign and he is good, meaning that through all of it, he will use men's sins to bring about his goodness in the end. He will bend everything back to his will. His will. God walks with us. He is patient with us. He is good to us. Romans 8.28 says, everything God does, he will bring about to his redemptive good. God will take all a man's wickedness and sin and redeem it. God is bigger than we are in all of our petty bickering with each other. In the end, God will work all things to his purpose. It means, again, God bends all things, sin, suffering, affliction, everything to the place where he brings it back together in redemptive good. That's what God does. Driscoll once said, God wastes not one tear, God wastes not one suffering, God wastes not one hardship, because God is not just sovereign, God is good. And if you have someone in your life, like like Naomi, do not walk up to them and say, oh, praise God, you lost your husband and your kids. God must be doing something really cool in your life. Don't say that. You, You weep with them. You mourn with them while still trusting God to bring about his goodness. God is sovereign and God is good. You have to understand that that God is not just good. Some people thinking God is just good and not sovereign say some really stupid stuff. Oh, God didn't know that would happen or God's just as surprised as you are. I was listening to this podcast this week from a a very large church. I just came across it and the the teaching pastor actually said when God created man in the garden, he thought there might be a pretty good chance that they would disobey him. And I'm like, what? Delete. Heresy. God is not surprised like we are. God is saddened and God is angered by man's sin, but he's not surprised. Why? Because he's sovereign. He is sovereign. And even though we run off all of our crazy directions, in the end, he will weave it together like a beautiful tapestry again. That's what God does. And again, if you are a Christian, it does not remove us from suffering, but it always can be a sanctified affliction. And I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you've been through, what you're going through, what you are going to go through one day. But I can tell you that God is a God of a said. And God is good. He is kind and sovereign. 
And we can trust Him to live out our lives in witness of that goodness. How do we know this? Because Jesus came. That's how we know it. God could have left us to our own devices and said, Oh, you sinned, screwed up, boom, you're done. But what does He do? He comes in flesh, in Jesus, to die the death we should have died. Rises from the grave to give us new life, to bring us back into relationship with Him again. That's what He does. He does not just leave us in our worst affliction, which is called sin. He brings us back again because He is good. That is a God of a said. This is why we talk about communion every single week. That's why you break that cracker. It's meant to remind you of His goodness. You dip in the wine or the grape juice, remind you of His blood that was shed to bring us back in again. Because our God is a God of a said. He is way more kind than He needs to be. But it's who He is. And He calls us to be a people who begin to live out that same kindness and goodness. Uh, one commentator likens it to all of our lives like the underside of a tapestry. He calls it living under the loom. And on the backside of the tapestry, all you see is these horrible knots and, and things, and it just looks horrible. But if you turn it over, you see this beautiful front side of a tapestry. And he says, this is what God sees, the, the front side of the tapestry. We live under the room and see all the, all the knots and the tears. But God sees everything he's molding together into his ultimate will and redemptive good. And that's what we trust, because God is good. We know because Jesus came. The band's going to come up. As they do, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you are in a place today where you feel like God isn't listening to your prayers, you have some affliction or you're suffering, and you want someone to pray with you, they'd love to pray with you. If you are in a place where you're just thinking, God, I am the enemy of God, you're not. You're not. But they would love to talk to you and pray with you about that to help you begin to understand God's goodness and God's grace and what he has done to rescue and redeem us and bring us back to him again. There's offering boxes on the side of one in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. There's food in the back. Grab something to eat. Uh, I would encourage you this week, and hopefully if you meet some people, to go and talk about some things in the sermon notes. Uh, maybe even ask some questions like, you know, where in your life do you feel like God is your enemy? Where do you feel affliction coming upon you? Where are the places that you haven't even asked God the question in the midst of an affliction, if ever? God, how are you growing me in the midst of this? What do you want to teach me through this? You know, ask those kind of questions of one another because we are meant to step into each other's lives to help remind one another of who God is and what he does. We're not meant to be the lone ranger. We're meant to do lives together with one another. This is why we have such a strong focus on gospel communities at Element because you cannot do it alone. God doesn't intend for us to do it alone. We come alongside one another. We lift one another up. We love one another. We steer one another back, especially in the midst of our hurts and afflictions. So we can remind one another that things that come into our lives have either come from the hand of God or have passed through it because God is sovereign and God is good and God is kind. We must continually remind one another of that and steer one another back to the goodness of Jesus because he is good. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us day by day of your goodness. Father, for people in this room right now who see you as sovereign but not good, I ask that you would reveal your goodness to them, that they'd be able to begin to see how you have done all that you did to bring us back to you again, that we would trust you for who you are, that we would begin to walk in your ways by how we see your sovereignty and goodness. 
God, for people in this room who maybe see you as good and not sovereign, I ask that you would begin to change that view of who you are. They would, they would begin to see your sovereignty in all things. That we begin to trust you for no matter what comes our way in the situation we are in. God teaches that in the midst of an American culture, we so often think that things need to be taken care of quickly. And yet we need simply to have a long obedience in the same direction of trusting you. Because sometimes it's slow. Because you take your time as you mold us and change us. Father, we thank you that there is nothing in this world, even the horrible things today that we cannot understand, that you will not ultimately use to bring about your glory and redemptive good. So teach us to trust you and to live out that trust in front of others, that we would truly begin to be your ambassadors of your grace, of your hope, and today, most importantly, of your ascent that we be faithful to our relationships, not just with you, but with others, and that we would live in kindness and goodness, understanding that our God has first been kind and good to us. Teach us to live these things, always bringing glory and honor to your name because you are good. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.